James chapter 5, verse 12 first. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, beginning there. Again, you have heard Jesus said that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, and anything beyond these is of evil. Some years ago, a book entitled The Day America Told the Truth brought some disturbing clarity to the issue, and I brought some of these statistics to you before about integrity and the lack or the lack of it. And in that work, the author, one of the co-authors, James Patterson, reported that the typical American lies at the drop of a hat, that lying is an integral part of their lives. He had the statistics in that book to prove it that 91% of the Americans admit that they lie on a routine basis. And that's pretty scary when you start to think about it. 75% say they lie to friends, 73% to siblings, 69% to spouses, 81% about their feelings. How many of you feel or have recently felt that you, in the midst of a certain situation or circumstance, had no choice but to lie? Shade the truth a little bit. Now, that seems like an incredible question for me to ask a group of people that claim to be followers of Jesus, doesn't it? How can a person who bears the name of Christ, the embodiment of all the truth, look someone straight in the eye and tell them a flat-out lie? But it happens, unfortunately. It happens quite a bit. Do you ever wonder how that can be? Well, Mark DeHaan offers some insight, and I quote, he says, the lies we tell each other are only the tip of the iceberg. The real problem is found in the lies we tell ourselves and believe. The real lies are those whispered in the deep shadows of our soul. They are about forfeitures of truth at much deeper levels. If I lie, he says, I have believed that it is up to me to save my own skin. I have assumed that it is safer to distrust God than to run the risk of being found out by others. I have forgotten that because of the mercy of Christ, telling the truth is always better than telling a lie. Proverbs 21, 23 says this, he who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. But the problem, um, honestly, honesty lies much deeper than the tip of our tongues, you see. The problem lies deep in the womb of our character, in our hearts. The sincerity of our hearts is marked by the integrity of our words. James, in our passage today, said the same thing concerning the integrity of even the simplest of our words. And so the question this morning that we need to ask ourselves is, are you a man or a woman of your word? Can people trust what you say? 
Do you ever feel that you have to buttress your words with an appeal to God as your witness to affirm their validity? In other words, I swear to God. We live in a world where verbal integrity is an endangered species, wouldn't you say? And society reacts to such dishonesty. And no wonder, given the above statistics that I just quoted for you, no wonder banks delay clearing checks because they don't trust their own customers. No wonder hospital emergency rooms turn patients away because they fear that they will never get paid for their services. No wonder we carry guns and install security alarms and insist on prenuptial contracts No one trusts anyone anymore. What's the phrase you hear all the time? Would you put that in writing? That betrays us, doesn't it? As followers of Christ and citizens of God's kingdom, our words should be as gospel truth, so to speak, and that's a pun intended. Jesus left us with an incredibly high standard of honesty in speech, and James is not shy about reminding us us of it. And it's right here in James chapter 5. It's amazing how frequently James seems to bring up things that we think we already know. You find that true in this book, since we've studied it? And then he shows us how utterly blind we are and negligent. We believe that we have a grasp on what it means to be truthful and honest with people, yet how often do we bend or we shape that truth to meet our own needs? How often do we tell these little so-called white lies? Someone once said that those who are given to white lies soon become colorblind. And that's a good statement. James, like his brother Jesus, is interested in only one thing from Christians— We just heard it. It's the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So he touched on a few areas in which we should be concerned. And I'll give it to you briefly in three phrases James talks about here. He talks about spiritual credibility. He talks about verbal integrity. And he talks about personal culpability. In short... He's advocating for straight talk, simple talk, and he's advocating against sinful talk. First of all, straight talk. We need to be concerned with the principle of spiritual credibility. James chapter 5, the first part of verse 12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear. Now, he's not talking about profanity here. What he's talking about is taking oaths and, or buttressing your words, as I said previously, with things like calling God into the picture in order to shore up what you're saying and make people believe that you really mean what you say. This statement of James seems so out of place with the rest of the context in this chapter. And many scholars, more clever than I, have tried to make a connection to what comes before or what comes after verse 12. But it's simply just not clear what James was thinking when he embarked on this line of thought. What rolls off the tongue certainly has taken a high profile among, among James's pastoral counsel, 
wouldn't you say, in this book? He refers to the tongue and our speech and all these kinds of things numerous times, and we've talked about that. It's taken a very high profile in this letter. And he's thinking of this, I believe, as he's winding up this letter, but is it really the most significant thing that he has to say to us? He says, but above all, my brethren, it's possible that integrity of speech may be a final thought on his heart, but I think the terminology here really is more of a parting shot that James is trying to give, kind of similar to when Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, finally, my brethren, and then he goes on for another 12, 14 verses. He's trying to remind us that what proceeds from our mouth is indicative of the color of our hearts. And therefore, when it comes to our faith, which is what this whole letter is about, it will be our words that either condemn us or confirm us. In Matthew, Jesus talked about that in Matthew chapter 12 in a very scary passage. He says in verse 35, the good man brings out of his good treasure what is good and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Serious passage of Scripture from Jesus. But the thing to notice here is that James really personalizes this statement in verse 12 with this phrase. He says, above all, my brethren... My brethren. Now, he's referred to brethren in this letter a lot of times. In fact, last week, he did it three times. But he adds the word my here, my brethren. And I think what he's doing here is he's saying, I'm right there with you guys in this fight for personal integrity. He's identifying with his people. And again, we really need to read James's command through the lens, if we're going to understand it correctly, through the lens of Jesus' words back in Matthew chapter 5 in verse 33 and 34. Jesus begins by saying, again, you've heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all. Everyone can agree that Jesus' statement here, taken as it is, is a good statement. In fact, everything that Jesus says is a good statement, right? In fact, it seems to represent what the Old Testament taught in a number of places, that if you make a vow to the Lord, you are bound to fulfill it. Follow along with me. Keep your finger in these places, if you would. Leviticus chapter 19, first of all. Leviticus 19, verses 11 and 12. We read these words. You shall not steal. Oh, yeah, that's right. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Numbers. Verse, chapter 30, verse 2. Moses writes, If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy, chapter 23, beginning in verse 21. 
When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. Okay, so you get the picture here. This is Old Testament stuff. The Jews that Jesus was talking to understood this. But the problem wasn't with the statement itself. Jesus said, again, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. There's nothing wrong with that statement. What Jesus was getting at, he's he's basically reiterating what the Old Testament said. If you make a vow, it should be carried out. But what Jesus was addressing here in this passage was not a problem of, of fulfilling vows that were made to the Lord. It was a problem of misplaced emphasis. Now, what do I mean by that? Instead of emphasizing the obligation of the vow, the Pharisees emphasized the identification of the vow and the Pharisees um, with the Lord's name, by invoking the Lord's name. Let me explain. See, and change their entire outlook. What they were saying in Leviticus 19.12 and they were highlighting was, you shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God. In Numbers 30, verse 2, if a man makes a vow to the Lord, he shall do it. When you make a vow in Deuteronomy 23, 21, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. So what they were doing was in effect was to regard only the oaths taken in the name of the Lord as absolutely binding. Anything else, they were free to lie. Swearing by anything short of God's name left the oath open for breaking. So practically speaking, if a person wanted to make a really good impression on you, he could take an oath and swear by anything under the sun. And they did. They swore by heaven. They swore by earth. They swore by the temple. And they swore by Jerusalem, knowing full well that they had no intention of fulfilling and following through on their word, but it really sounded good. Kids do it all the time, and so do adults, right? I swear on the stack of Bibles. President does that when he takes the oath of office. Or kids with pinky swear. Oh, you've heard people say it? I swear on my mother's grave. Now, today, these statements virtually mean Nothing, absolutely nothing to people. The presiding thought was that as long as they kept God's name out of the deal, they were free to renege on the promise because they were not bound. They didn't invoke God. Jesus hated that kind of hypocrisy. That's what Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount is all about. He's bringing in a higher standard in every section. And James picked up on his big, brother's te- his, little, his big brother's teaching and he said the same exact thing to us in James chapter 5, verse 12. 
The people of their day, James's day, took an Old Testament principle provided to maintain some standard of spiritual credibility and turned it into an absolute sham. Every word they uttered became a potential lie and untrustworthy. Their credibility was absolutely shot, pretty much as it is today. And Jesus said, had, Jesus basically had nothing but contempt for that attitude. Matthew chapter 5 again, verse uh, chapter 20, I'm sorry, not chapter 5, chapter 23, a little bit further along in the gospel, verse 16, Jesus says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold of the temple that sank? Uh, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold. And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the, altar, the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. See what what Jesus is doing here? Don't we make the same sort of distinctions in our own minds? at times? Do you consider your word binding even without invoking God's name? You have to swear on the Bible or invoke God's, God as your witness before your word is trustworthy? What was the last promise you made to somebody? Did you keep it? The last time you volunteered to take some responsibility, did you follow through? Now, to be sure, there are things we say and then honestly we forget we said them, right? Happens all the time. It happens to me a lot lately. (laughs) Older I get, the more it happens. There, There are things that we say and through circumstances beyond our control cause us to have to change our plans. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is not talking about that. Neither is James. They're addressing flat-out duplicity in our speech, promising something and never, ever, ever in our minds meaning to fulfill it at all. You see, both James and Jesus are concerned that we practice the principle of spiritual credibility, straight talk. Secondly, James says he's advocating for simple talk. In other words, we need to replace the pattern of verbal dishonesty with a commitment to verbal integrity. Replace the pattern of verbal dishonesty with a commitment to verbal integrity. James chapter 5, verse 12 again. Do not swear, my brethren, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no. A 2000, uh, let, me, let me read the Matthew 5 passage as well. 
verses 34 to 36. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king, or by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. 2008 survey of 30,000 teens by the Josephson Institute revealed some troubling statistics a while back about honesty of high school teenagers. When it comes to lying, the survey showed that teens have no compunction about it. Nearly half said they lied to save money. 83% said they lied to a parent about something significant. 83%. The survey also found more students in private religious schools admit to lying than teens in public schools. Now, does that mean that religious teens are more honest about their lying than their non-religious peers? In fact, one out of four teens admitted to lying about one or more questions on the survey. So we don't even know if the survey's right. But here's the kicker. Even with all of that, 93% say they are satisfied with their personal ethics and character. I read a story about a Sunday school some Sunday school kids that had been memorizing Bible verses, and at times they'd kind of confuse them and mix them up, kind of half a verse with another verse and all this stuff, and sometimes that works to your benefit, right? During one class, a teacher quizzed them and says, what's the definition of a lie? Jumping up with the answer, one little boy replied, a lie is an abomination to the Lord and a very present help in time of trouble. (laughs) That pretty well sums it up, doesn't it? Exactly what the Pharisees did. Proverbs 12 and verse 22 says, The Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in men who are truthful. See, they knew that God abhorred a lying tongue. They had that scripture memorized. They also knew that it helped them cover their dishonesty. Very present help in time of trouble. The pattern was plain. They misrepresented the truth and they manipulated their words. So dishonesty begins, you need to know this, with misrepresentation. Jesus said, look, your precise wording and your detailed vows are absolutely irrelevant. The spirit of the Old Testament law was that if you make a vow, you keep it, regardless of what word formula you use with it. Any promise one makes is a promise that invokes, involves God in the transaction even if you don't mention his name because you can't keep God out of your life. He's already there. So don't make any oaths at all. The use of oaths had degenerated to the point that deception and dishonesty was the underlying foundation of regular speech. So as long as God's name wasn't there, you could lie. And people expected that. You could come as close as you wanted to. You could swear by everything in the book, but you weren't bound unless God's name was was mentioned. It's interesting to note that these were Jewish oaths, oath formulas that, that Jesus and James mentions here about swearing by the earth or by or by Jerusalem or by the temple or by heaven. Greeks and Romans didn't use that terminology. 
Jesus obliterated the Jews' philosophy. He said, no matter what wording you use, you cannot eliminate a reference to God. You know why? Because he's the Lord of all things. If you vow by heaven, you're referring to his throne. If you vow by the earth, it's his footstool. Jerusalem's his city. And even if you vow by your own head, you can't avoid God's involvement because he is your creator. He determines whether your hair is black or white. Even swearing on a stack of Bibles is a reference to God's word. And the point is, is that God is witness to every single statement that you and I make. And even if what we, if what we say is in any way deceitful or dishonest, we have called God as a witness to our sin. And James reminds us, as we will see, that when we do that, we put ourselves under condemnation. That's at the end of James 5, verse 12. So, we need to know that dishonesty begins with misrepresentation, but then it goes a step further. Dishonesty begets manipulation. The Jews in Jesus' day had drawn a separation that was artificial, and unfortunately, the Christians of James' day were doing the same exact thing, They were manipulating their words to sound impressive by invoking anything short of God's name, but their lies were still against God. And William Barclay rightly states, here is a great truth, and I quote, an eternal truth. Life cannot be divided into compartments in some of which God is involved and in others of which he is not involved. I could stop right there and that would be enough. He says, there cannot be one kind of language in the church and another kind of language in the shipyard or in the factory or at the office. There cannot be one kind of standard of conduct in the church and another kind of standard in the business world. The fact is that God does not need to be invited into certain departments of life and kept out of others. He is everywhere, all through life, and in every activity of life. He hears not only the words which are spoken in his name, and there cannot be any such thing as a form of words which evades bringing God into the transaction, but we will regard all promises as sacred if we remember that all promises are made in the presence of God. Unquote. Now, here's the big question. Were Jesus and James forbidding all taking of oaths? Because there are people and religious denominations that teach that. No oaths. Even if you're called into a court of law, you're forbidden to take the stand and take the oath. So when you have jury duty and you go in, should a Christian refuse to be placed under oath when testifying in court? Or or not jury duty necessarily, but if you're called to be a witness in court. Now, the whole point of these statements here is that we must be men and women of our word. And when we are, oath-taking becomes unnecessary. But James, neither James nor Jesus, I believe, are forbidding all oath-taking. under any circumstances. Because if they were, we would be faced with a host of biblical inconsistencies. 
Let me just give you a few. Number one, God himself took oaths. In Genesis twenty-two sixteen, he swore an oath to Abraham to make him a great nation. In Psalm 132, in verse 11, it is stated that the Lord swore to David that he would fulfill the covenant made with him to put one of his descendants, the Messiah, on the throne. It's also repeated in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2, verse 30. And then we have this situation in Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, which says in verse 16... For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end to every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. What did God do? God swore by himself. So help me me, he said, basically. So God took took oaths in the scripture. Secondly, Paul seems to have invoked God's name in Romans chapter one, verse nine. For God is my witness, Paul writes, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. He does the same thing in 2 Corinthians. The Old Testament law demanded oaths in certain circumstances, and we just saw a few verses about that, but Exodus 22 even talks about that in verses 10 and 11, and you can look those up yourself. But fourthly, and here's the kicker, is that Christ himself was put under oath, and he responded. Matthew chapter 26, verse 63, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus replied, yes, it is as you say. But I say to all of you in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting on the, at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now I'm convinced that it was only hypocritical swearing that both Christ and James was condemning here, not all oaths. If there were no evil in the world, it would be unnecessary for men to take oaths in a court of law before unbelievers. What Jesus abhorred and James was reiterating was deceitful misrepresentation and dishonest manipulation by us. The emphasis was on the fact that as children of God, we should never need to resort to oaths to lend credibility to our words in normal, everyday speech. People should be able to take us at our word, in other words. Oaths arise, as someone put it, because men are so often liars. And that's a sad commentary but it's also a sad truth because we live in a world where 60% of the people admit to lying at least once during a 10-minute conversation. 60% of people admit to lying at least once in every 10-minute conversation. That's pretty sad. John Stott said, swearing is really a pathetic confession to our own dishonesty, if we have to swear. 
Jeremiah wept over the fact that the credibility of God's people was completely gone, and so should we in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. The weeping prophet, he's known as, in a, in a lament over his city and his people, Jeremiah writes, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a wayfarer's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go from them, for all of them are adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like their bow. Lies and not truth prevail in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone be on guard against his neighbor, and do not trust any brother, because every brother deals craftily. And in the Hebrew language, that is a play on words, that line right there. Basically, it says literally, do not trust any brother because everyone is a Jacob. Jacob means deceiver in the Hebrew. And every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor and does not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. Your dwelling is in the midst of deceit. And through deceit, they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. He could have written that today, right now, in the midst of our own social media immersed society. James and Jesus are not just advocating straight talk and simple talk, but they're advocating against sinful talk. And we need only to be concerned about the principle of spiritual, we need not only be concerned about the spiritual, of spiritual credibility and our pattern of personal dishonesty, but more pointedly, and at the end of this verse here, James says, we need to be convinced of the prospect of personal culpability. Look at what it says here. Verse 12, let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. There's a reason why James is saying this. That's what sinful talk does. Both James and Jesus emphatically commanded us to be truthful in our simplest of statements. For Christians, normal, plain, everyday speech should be trustworthy, should be honest, should be sincere, yes? Anything less puts us at odds with the Lord himself, they say. We shouldn't have to employ special language. James 5.12 in the uh, New Century Version puts it like this. When you mean yes, say only yes. When you mean no, say only no, so you will not be judged guilty. The New Living Translation puts it this way. Just say a simple yes or no so that you will not sin and be condemned. In other words, Say what you mean and mean what you say. There shouldn't be any waffling or hedging. 
Now, I like the J.B. Phillips version of Matthew chapter 5, verse 37. It says, whatever you have to say, let your yes be a plain yes and your no be a plain no. Anything more than that has a taint of evil. That's what Jesus said. But James says that speech marked by duplicity instead of simplicity with sincerity brings culpability. Let me say that again. That's a bumper sticker. (laughs) Right? Speech marked by duplicity instead of simplicity with sincerity brings culpability. It brings us under judgment. And Jesus goes even further and states that it smacks of evil intent. How much more simple can you get than let your yes be yes and your no be no? We've been talking recently about the construction of a new playground and family rec area out here. And Chris has been assembling a planning team to research and gather information. And I, I I know what they're going to encounter. And I remember well throughout the planning process of our last building project that Glenn and I had to read over various legal documents, things like easements and deeds and contracts, liability issues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I was so astounded every time I would read the legalese, the amount of verbiage that is needed to cover every possible legal loophole. And when I would read that legalese, I would always think, how ridiculous this all seems. But how necessary it is in a sin-soaked society. It's too bad that a simple yes or no can't bind a transaction anymore. But I know that, that's, that ship sailed, <laughs> right? And the only time that's coming back is when Jesus comes back. I respect and admire people who are not wordy probably because I'm not one of them. They say what they mean, and they mean what they say. It's no surprise to me that right on the heels of his teaching on divorce in Matthew chapter 5, that Jesus talks about the sincerity of one's vows. You find that interesting? You know what happens at the weddings, right? When people take their vows before God and these witnesses. I take you, it's my husband or my wife, to live together in marriage, right? I will love you in sickness and in health, in good times and in bad, for richer, for poorer, so long as we both shall live. This pledge I make to you in good faith, right? We say that. And you did this before God. And then when people are divorced and have their legal papers drawn up, with all the legalese in it, and it's signed by a a human judge who's supposed to have authority to dissolve that which God, the ultimate judge, has already made permanent and indissolvable, undissolvable, isn't that movement from the greater to the lesser? But my friends, the verbal integrity that Christ desires of us pushes us way beyond the complexity of those kinds of formal vows. It burrows deep, deep, deep into the strata of the simplest of our words and the sincerity with which we utter them. And James agrees wholeheartedly with Jesus. How valuable is your word? 
Is it trustworthy? Can, have you said your check's in the, the check's in the mail when you knew it wasn't? How many times has the boss heard you say, I'll get on it right away? And three months later, job's still not done. How often did you tell your parents or your spouse, or especially God, your father, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. And then before the week was out, you've done it five more times. According to James Patterson, we are a nation of congenital liars. And as we look around our society at the scandals of late, and there are many, and the claims of fake news being leveled against the media outlets, it's dreadfully apparent that we lie to the government and the government lies to us. We lie to our spouses and they lie to us. We lie to our families and they lie to us. And the strange as it may seem, we lie to ourselves and our self lies right back to us as if we don't know the truth about what and who we really are. But worst of all, we lie to God, but he always tells the truth, always. And we may use all kinds of language to cover it up, but the fact is that the truth has no shades of degrees. Half-truth is a whole lie. There's no way around it, and anything beyond the simple straightforward truth, the straight talk, the simple talk, becomes sinful talk. That's what Jesus said, and that's what James reiterated. And it's a devastation to everyone involved in that circle. Outside of the truth, there's no place for a Christian to be. Outside of the truth, there's no place for a Christian to be. Why? Because our Savior is the truth. He is the truth. His word is truth. We are sanctified or set apart by the truth. Therefore, we should tell the truth, love the truth, live the truth, follow the truth. Both Jesus and James advocate for the same exact thing. Simple honesty, complete truthfulness, but honesty is more than just words. Honesty begins here, and that needs to be the throne room of Jesus Christ. And if it's not there... No amount of strategically arranged words can veil the lie. One of my favorite C.S. Lewis statements of all time, no clever arrangement of bad eggs can make a good omelet. (laughs) And that applies here. Truth is, oaths don't change a lying person's heart. It's in there or it's not. And Jesus needs to be in there. And if he is in there, we need to be following him. So all of us have made commitments. None of us are immune or exempt that we haven't kept. Commitments to projects, commitments to people, commitments to families, commitments to ourselves. And those can be forgiven when Christ is on the throne. But there's one commitment that we dare not ignore. One commitment which we dare not ignore, the one we made when we said, Jesus, I will follow you. 
I will follow you. And that's the big question. That's what James is really, really, bottom line, is getting at here in verse 12. He wants his people to follow the truth. When you said to Jesus, I will follow you, have you? Have I? Maybe you started out well but haven't continued well. Quite possibly little things have started to crowd out your interest in him. What was once a roaring fire has become maybe a tiny flicker now. You know, we promise everything when our backs are against the wall. And then when God gives us a little breathing room, what then? Have we forgotten what we said at the beginning of our faith walk with Christ? We need to be truthful, completely truthful with him. Said Dietrich Bonhoeffer, only is complete truthfulness is only possible where sin has been uncovered and forgiven by Jesus. The cross is God's truth about us. And therefore, it is only power, it's the only power which can make us truthful. So maybe Jesus has uncovered an area of sin in your life this morning. Let him forgive you because he promises he will. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So take some time. Take some time and pray about the words that you've spoken over the years, even within the last 24 hours possibly. How many of them would you like to take back? How many of them would you like to fulfill? How many of them do you need to confess? And then do what it takes, my friends. Do what it takes and do what the Holy Spirit desires of us and you will be free. Free to live your faith on the front line. Because Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you, you are truly disciples of mine. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If therefore the Son shall make you free, you will be free indeed. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the promise of freedom in Christ. We don't have to be under the burden of trying to save our own skin by shading the truth or being dishonest or being manipulative or misrepresenting things. Help us, Lord, when we can't trust someone else to trust you who are Lord of all things. And then help us, Lord God, to begin to operate in love and kindness and truth with one another. Father, I pray that there's a person in this place today that has never, never confessed their sin and their need of you, I pray that they would do that. I ask you, Lord God, that by your Holy Spirit, that right where they sit, even right now, that they would be able to bow their hearts and their heads and be able to say with sincerity and simplicity, have I sinned, Lord? Yes. 
Am I sorry, Lord? Yes. Do I need you, Lord? Yes. Will I walk away from your Holy Spirit's urging right now? No. Lord, let their yes be yes and their no be no. And may your yes save them. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.